There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is recorded on Noongar land. We'd like to acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land and extend that respect to any First Nations, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander and their elders who are listening today. We respect their spiritual relationship with their country. Have you ever wondered exactly what it is that that married man found so appealing about paying for it? Or watched the murder doco and thought, how can that monster's mother still love him? Welcome to To Be Frank, the show that invites you to step inside the world of Constance Hall as she explores the most interesting topics and people from all over the world. With no BS, no filter. Now your host, Constance Hall, and co-host, Claudia McLeod. Thank you for listening to another episode of To Be Frank. I'm Constance Hall, and today I'm joined by the beautiful, who you may recognise, Priya Alexander. Thank you so much. Hello, Con. Thank (laughs) you. I know you've done a lot of work on TV. So I co-hosted Good Chef, Bad Chef cooking show with uh, Adrian Richardson, and then I also have done a couple of Catalyst episodes on ABC. Oh, cool. And then... I go on the drum on that news panel show, which has just been cancelled, sadly. But, yeah, and I do ABC News Breakfast, so I just pop around. So from when I think of you, I see you on Instagram explaining the vulva. And (laughs) (laughs) and I showed my daughter and I said, imagine having a mum like this. So Priya's a GP and she has this beautiful way of talking about everything. And you feel like you could just listen to her for hours. And, yeah, I showed my daughter. I said, does that make you cringe? She said, no. I said, how come she can talk about the vulva but I can't? And I make you cringe. Do you have daughters? I do. My eldest is a girl. She doesn't cringe when I do it either, so maybe I have this special power. You do, and you must be the only one, especially if your own <laughs> child is immune to it. Yeah. No, she doesn't cringe at all. So we talk about vulva vagina because I'm like, darling, you need to make sure that everyone's getting this right. Yeah, yeah. At school. And she's seven and we're big into, you know, we talk about penis vagina because I've got a son as well. We don't use, our nanny sometimes says to us, she goes, you're the only family I know who use the proper terms. And I'm like, of course we use the proper terms. Mm, it's important. Of course we it? do. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Kids need to know their bodies. It helps to keep them safe in terms of sexual abuse because they know what what the parts are called. They know that it's a private area that mm. other people shouldn't be touching it. So it's got lots of benefits. But, mate, I'm seeing people into their adulthood who still don't really know about their bodies. It's still, like, stigmatised and, oh, I'm sorry that my feet look like this and I haven't waxed my legs for my cervical screening test and I've got <laughs> haven't had my bikini done and I'm like, don't, don't worry. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? And that's I yeah. always thought of that as a woman. Like when I had my son, I noticed this real difference between, you know, we sort of lived in the country, and and my kids are kind of naked kids. I know people shun that, but we there was no one around. You know what I mean? But if my little girl was naked, and you know, like friends would stop by everybody would be like oh quick put a nappy on her or put some knickers on her and and if I would make a joke about you know what she something gross that she was doing people would be like oh con don't whereas with the boy you know he, yeah 
and he's grabbing the hose and trying to put his willy in it and everyone's thinking it's, sorry, his penis, everyone's thinking it's hilarious <laughs> and I'm going like, do you know what I mean? And it's almost like boys are born with this God-given like right to their bodies. Yeah. But girls aren't. And yeah. Yeah, it's because they're being protective. But statistically, would you say more boys or girls, is there a difference in gender when it comes to their at being at risk? I actually don't know the answer to that question. There are experts that definitely would. But, I mean, the stuff that I tend to see in the consulting room is horrifically sometimes involving children. But I have patients who've survived childhood sexual abuse and they're both, you know, men and women. And, gosh, the the long-lasting implications of this stuff is huge and it's across the board. I guess we do everything we can to keep our kids safe. It's something we're paranoid about, I think, because of what we've both seen as doctors, because Will's a doctor too. But I mean, going back, because we've gone right down a rabbit hole here, that that is one of the reasons why we talk about the anatomy as it is, without names and things. And we're very open and honest, and you should be the only person touching this. And also things like, you watched that, clearly that Insta video of the vulva vagina, but even this notion of, for instance, convaginal discharge, which is normal, yep. it gets stigmatised. You know, vaginal discharge shouldn't smell. There shouldn't be any discharge. It should look a certain way, the labia majora, the minora. It's almost like starts in childhood of the stuff that, and it's it's tricky to unpack that for adults and go, this stuff's normal, team. It is tricky. It is. It's really because there's so much shame and shame is a feeling that we just want to avoid, isn't it? Yes. I've heard so many podcasts. People are talking about like vaginas and the hosts will quickly be like, well, mine doesn't have a smell or mine doesn't, you know, like, and it's almost like they have to just stay away from me because yeah. like that, that's not a problem I have. And I think that a lot of the time men in particular have used things like that against us. Like I I am a in a burner account. I have a troll Facebook account and I'm in a men's group and yes. because <laughs> oh it's gross and I want to keep an eye on them. Do you know what I mean? If I need to take a few down, I'll take a few down. But you hear these men talking, like there's a, a celebrity woman in Australia and these like men are talking about her anatomy, someone that slept with her, and really using those points. And so I feel like that is such a scary area for us that we either don't want to sleep with anyone or just don't want or, or just want to make sure that we are protected. But if we could make everyone a little bit more aware that your video said something interesting, it was some women when they ovulate, some women, yes. you know, it's it's part of the cycle for different women. Oh, my gosh, it is. And so, yes, when we ov- when you ovulate, if you're not on um, cycle suppression like the pill, um, if you're popping off an egg from the ovary, yeah, you can often get that kind of egg white discharge. I can tell when I'm ovulating because yes. it's a different, like, you know when they say you can do that with your fingers? Yes. And it sticks. Yeah, you can tell. And it doesn't. It's actually quite nice. Like, it's not like a thrush. You wouldn't mistake it for an unhealthy no, discharge. But, and, but people do sometimes because they're like any vaginal discharge is bad when in fact it, it can be completely normal. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Con, you're saying that people have kind of weaponized it and I think the wellness industry has also weaponized it because if you go in, you know, like to, to certain shops and things, you will see stuff marketed to the vagina and the vulva. It's a billion-dollar industry for a reason, but there are vulval masks, there are sprays, there are washes, there are douches, things that actually can cause harm. You know, vulval masks can cause skin irritation. I've seen it in patients. Mm. Um, Douching can be really problematic. It can precipitate things like thrush, like bacterial vaginosis. 
but people think this is the stuff we have to buy into because it should smell or look a certain way. Like we're taught these things from a really young age. Exposure to pornography as well is a big one. The bar's here and you think that sex is meant to be like this and genitalia is meant to look like this when in fact the the spectrum of normal is huge. And I say this as a GP who sees piles and piles of things in my consulting room. There is no normal. I remember the first pap smear and drug tester and drug test. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was probably around the same time, to be honest. The <laughs> STD test that I ever had, I was probably yes. 16 or 15 and I did not want to do it. The doctor was this wild woman with big red Kelly hair and she said that to me. She goes, I've probably done 20 today. She said to me, I look at a vagina the way you look at a hand. And I was yes. like, oh, my God, that made me feel so much better. Like, it's just it. And you know, we don't remember con. Like, people go to me, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry you have to do this. And I'm like, again, like that doctor, like, I've done a billion today. Mm. I see every cervix. My whole intention when I'm doing a cervical screening test is to find the cervix. Yep. I'm not judging anything. I'm not looking at how you're groomed. People are apologising. Yeah. I don't care. I'm yeah. just excited we're preventing cancer. I'm like, yeah. I'm going to forget this yep. the minute you're out of my room. Yep. It's funny because that's what my doctor's a bit like. I have one doctor that I see for stuff like that because and other doctors that I'll get a prescription off, do you know what I mean? Because a good doctor is worth their weight in gold, as you would know, and it's a long wait and there's a lot of money. I don't care. But she is is a bit like you. Like you feel like she wants to give you a pap smear, like she's demanding that you get on the table. Whereas a woman, you want want someone that is demanding you to do that because you don't want to be going into some weird little shy boy and telling him, to look in your vagina, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like- yeah, but as a GP, I'm just going, We're like I'm actually internally high-fiving going, yes, we're preventing cervical cancer. Yes, and so do you believe in the screenings? Because I recently had a friend who got diagnosed with stage four, she's passed away now, mm-hmm. cervical cancer, and she had normal pap smear results. Uh, obviously, it still makes me, like it even more so, any case of cancer makes you want to go and get your tests done. Yeah. Uh, do you ever feel like, you know, saying once every five years, is that is that too much? Is that too long? Like some women feel a little bit scared. They do. I know. Now let's explain this. So it used to be the pap smear where you'd come into my consulting room, you'd hop up on the bed, I'd use the speculum, find your cervix, take a sample. And what they would do, Con, is look at the cells that I'd taken from the cervix under the microscope in the lab and go, oh, these cells look like they've been exposed to human papillomavirus and they look a bit changed. That's what we used to do. Now we do, and it shifted about, I reckon, pre-pandemic, but they changed it to the cervical screening test or the CST. And they said, rather than looking at the cells under the microscope, let's test for the virus directly. And so now what we do is we actually do a swab and we look for HPV, human papillomavirus, the virus that causes most cervical cancers. Right. Now, if you don't have the virus, great, you don't get a test for five years. That's what you're talking about. And if you do have the virus, it depends what grade. Do you have type 16, 18 or the other types? And we determine your management accordingly. But Con, the reason it's five years is HPV is a virus. It's like a cold. Yeah. So it's like your cervix having a cold. And in most people, you clear the cold. Just like a cold, you're sick for five days, you get better. The body's immune system clears it. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens with HPV. Even if your body doesn't clear the HPV and it sticks around, 
It takes years and years and years for cancer to develop. And so that five-year gap is actually not enough time for the actual cervical cancer changes to develop. So that's why the interval is Mm -hmm. the way it is. And now, just because people might love this, self-collection is an option. So if you think, shit, I don't want to hop on Priya's consulting room table, I don't want her to put the speculum in, you can talk to your GP about self-collect. You can do the swab yourself. So how do you know that you've touched the cervix? You know, the most fascinating thing I've ever done is my girlfriend's lesbian couple were trying to get pregnant. One's a doctor. They ended up using a turkey based art. The one who was yes. a doctor, she was bright white. She goes to me, Con, have you ever seen a cervix? And I said, no. And she goes, let's Google it. Oh my God. It's like a little donut. Like it's a fucking, it's, it's a little animal in there. <laughs> and so I and I, I also have a cervix that's really hard for doctors to find. But if I warn them of that, they can use a different thing and they and it's usually not so bad. But if I don't warn them, then we're there for half an hour when they're trying to get yes. to it. So how would you know that you got your cervix? So we give you very clear instructions. So you'll get a handout, you have a swab with a red mark on it so you know where to go to, you know the angle. So most of my patients, and I actually did this, I don't consider this an overshare, but I did my own test. When mine was due, I was like, I'm going to do this thing my patients are doing and live it. And it's easiest doing it with your foot up on the toilet seat so you can get the right angle. And if you don't get the right place, it will tell us on the result. Okay, great, great. So it's yeah, the cervix, but you're clear. Or you didn't yeah. get the cert yet. Gotcha. Cool. That's but if, if it but it might say inadequate sample to assess. I've had that on two patients where it says inadequate sample. So I say to them, either you come in and I can do it, or let's repeat it and try this instead. Yeah, that's awesome. So when you say most cervical cancers are created from HPV, yeah, which I didn't realise. I thought it was a way of getting cervical cancer. But have these cases been reduced since the Gardasil injection? Yes. So according to, I think it's the Cancer Council Australia, we are on track as a country to potentially eliminate cervical cancer. We're on track to potentially eliminate it. And that is thanks to the vaccination program Mm -hmm. and cervical screening tests. Wow. Now that's that's pretty cool stuff. Yes. Yeah, that is. is. Considering I have two friends who have died of a cancer that started in their cervix, they were both rare cancers. So I don't think that. Okay. Yeah. So obviously there is still like uh, the rare ones and that sort of yes. stuff. Yes. But that's huge. I remember getting Gardasil injections, and which I don't even like to talk about because I have lots of hippie friends and everyone has all their stats on Gardasil being a dodgy injection. And I'm like, I was just surprised I didn't have HPV. Like, I lived such a wild life that I was like they said if you've got HPV it's fine one in three people have it and I was like yeah cool like I've got it it's fine but I did it and I'm like of course I'm gonna get an injection then <laughs> you know yes. privilege. wow it's got a bad rap guys still hasn't it loads and loads of people get vaccinated but like any thing in medicine things can get a bad rap sadly vaccination is one of them and we know it's not the only like MMR the measles mumps rubella vaccine there were a lot of myths and damage done around that and it's taken years to debunk those myths there's now Cochrane reviews with millions of kids involved basically involving the measles mumps rubella vaccine saying this does not cause autism we've got evidence of that there's a lot of damage that can be done by misinformation and yes the HPV vaccine is one of them that's copped it but it is an excellent tool in preventing cervical cancer. And there's a reason it's on the national immunisation schedule for children because by vaccinating, we're basically reducing risk and lifetime risk of developing a cancer. Yeah. Like that's freaking amazing. You'd be vaccinating your kids 
Yeah. Yeah, great. Great. Yeah. They're vaccinated against anything and everything we can possibly <laughs> protect them from. That, I find that interesting because my doctors are very much the same and it's like, well, you guys would see firsthand and if yeah. you, you know, you've got pretty good critical thinking capabilities, I would like to think. Yes. And, you know, if you saw it as a microchip getting put into us or any of that no. sort of stuff, then you obviously wouldn't be doing your own children. No, correct. And can I just say the microchip one, like it's impossible to get a microchip into a needle. Like that's just absolutely, like a lot of the things, you're like there's a lot of evidence to suggest that these vaccines are safe. They reduce the risk of cervical cancer. You know, again, even with all of that, and we've seen it through the pandemic with COVID vaccines, you know, that's where I really kind of came into the news sphere, I guess, in kind of breaking down the misinformation, busting the myths to try and empower people. still happening because I did a couple of posts saying I'm getting vaccinated even though I'm a hippie and I try and not conform, but this is what I'm doing. And, and I still get people saying to me that, you know, their friend just died of cancer and it's my fault because I have blood on my hands because I told people to get vaccinated. Like it is full on. And they also now, the anti-vaxxers that come at me, you know, I'm open for any information. If, if it was wrong, if it didn't help what, and, and I was wrong, I'm open for that. But they believe this now that it was wrong and it didn't help because we all got sick or whatever happened. What do you say to that? Look, I think that particularly when it comes to COVID, that that vaccine was perhaps poorly understood by a lot of the community and that was a failure of lots of things and public health campaigning I think we could have done much better on that I felt like I was doing trying to do lots on social media but essentially we know the primary aim of those vaccines cons is the seatbelt if you're in the car crash it's to reduce your risk of dying. The seatbelt doesn't stop you from getting in the car crash. It doesn't stop the car crash. But if you're in it, you're less likely to get really hurt. And that's what the COVID vaccines are there for. I say to people, it's the seatbelt. It's it's not very good. We now know from data at reducing your risk of getting COVID. But if you do get it, particularly if you're high risk, it's a bloody good seatbelt. It's good at reducing risk of severe disease, going to hospital, dying, particularly in vulnerable individuals. That's what it's good at. It's the seatbelt. That's what I heard that st- statistics proved that in America. Yes. When people stopped yes. dying. And there are lots of studies that show us that it reduces the risk of severe disease, particularly in vulnerable groups. And that's why at the moment, like without getting too complex, but ATAGI, that group of independent experts, they constantly go, we're recommending a booster for this group. We're recommending, so at the moment, it's if you're over um, 70, come and get a booster. Absolutely. And we know because there's data that tells us, Con, that those people are at higher risk of complications of COVID. They're more likely to get pneumonia, go to hospital or die, and we know the vaccine reduces that risk, and so do antivirals in people who are high risk. Getting the antivirals in, in those early days, days one to five, it can reduce the risk of severe disease. I think a lot of the mistrust in Big Pharma has been going on for years, obviously. We, you know, yes. But be it that me and you have had a conversation about not being conspiracy theorists, and I'm not, but when I watched shows like Dope Sick. Did you watch that show about the Purdue no. family? No, I didn't. That invented or that brought out Oxycodone, Oxycontin. Oh, yes. And, and that sort of stuff. That kind of paints a picture for me that at the top level of these companies are mm. really badly bad intentions. Do you, as a doctor, find that, do you, have you ever come across, you know, pharmaceutical companies trying to throw things at you that you know are not for people's better best interests? So it's very regulated now. 
what pharmaceutical companies can actually do with someone like me who's a GP on the grounds. They can't gift things. They used to do golf trips and which absolutely there is a reason that is banned. It's because it does sway your judgment in the consulting room potentially. That is all gone now. It is extremely heavily regulated. But even if new things come out, Con, which they do all the time, it's up to me as the individual GP to upskill. So I'm going to not the pharmaceutical companies data on this. I'm going to, okay, where has this particular new type 2 diabetes medication, for instance, been trialed in a randomized controlled trial? Who ran the trial? Where are the biases? What was the sample size? Is the population reflective of what I see in my consulting room? You you spoke about critical thinking before. That's what we do when something new is released. We're not getting approached from pharmaceutical companies and going, you know, this is our trial, prescribe this. That's not how it can happen anymore because it's regulated. So what are your thoughts on weight loss injections? They have a place. They absolutely have a place. There are serious supply issues in Australia at the moment. These are medications which have an indication and I guess TGA approval, Therapeutic Goods Administration approval for type 2 diabetes. They've also been shown to be quite effective for weight loss, as we know, in people who do not have type 2 diabetes. And so in Australia, that's off-label use, but we know there's lots of data to support that they're quite effective. There are side effects like pancreatitis, nausea, but they have a role. And absolutely, for patients who are living with overweight and obesity, there's a higher risk of type 2 diabetes, fatty liver. There can be mental health body image issues. And so these patients need assistance too. It's just really tricky when a potential option is in short supply and there are patients who've got type 2 diabetes who cannot access the medication. It's a real pickle. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. See, I took that for a little while, but I didn't like it. I didn't think it helped me lose weight. But nothing like that ever helps me lose weight. Like Duramine doesn't help me. I'm sure if I had weight loss surgery, I would gain weight through it. Do you know what I mean? Like I actually need You're that person. To, yeah, I need to do the old-fashioned way of walking and eating less. It's just like it's just what I'm You are going to do. So if we're talking about lifestyle interventions for weight management, let's take you, for example, you might come to me and go, Priya, I do want to shift maybe 5 to 10% of my weight because I'm worried about my breast cancer risk and I've got young kids and I want to reduce my risk of type 2 diabetes and I've got a really strong family history or my ethnicity makes me higher risk. These are the conversations I have and I go to people, okay, let's do this. And for some, there are medication options, but for many people like you're saying, it might be getting involved, a dietitian and an exercise physiologist to actually help with achieving the goal. But as you just said, for some people, the lifestyle stuff is powerful, but sometimes you need help. We all know we need to eat less and exercise more. Like you can follow as many goodness gurus and fucking wellness people as you want. But like at the end of the day, if you can't motivate yourself and you can't, you know, stay motivated throughout the day, it's a decision you have to continue to make all day, not every yeah. day, not just once. Like that's where everyone's falling short. Life gets in the way and things become bigger and more more important or more 
dramatic and you just decide, fuck it, I'm going to eat this or I'm not going to do that waltz. I can't be fucked. And I think it takes a lot to get there and, and everyone just wants to kind of know how to get there, you know? You're right. But I also think conduct culture is a really big problem huge. Like I see this in my consulting room and it makes me terribly devastated for the world we live in that for a lot of people, we buy into this notion that being thinner or being thin is going to make us successful or happier or better. It's diet culture. It gets us to buy into that belief and it's this fat phobia that underlies it, you know, that you must avoid being fat because that means that you're unsuccessful or that you're lazy. This is fat phobia. This is comes back to assigning labelling to food. I see this all the time on social media. This is a good food. This is a bad food. This is a clean food. This is a healthy food. This is unhealthy. All of this stuff is diet culture and it's just so pervasive. It's everywhere. It's, you know, it's, it's the festive season and people are talking about healthy puddings and healthy potatoes. I'm like, just, we should be able to enjoy the food as it is because it's food and it's all good. And we eat lots of the rainbows and the whole grains and we might eat less of the salt and the processed foods because of bowel cancer and heart disease risk. But mate, we can eat it all. And this is an allergy or an ethical reason or whatever. Go for it. You know, like I remember getting trolled by people that wanted to try and make me feel really fat and ugly in order to troll me. And they would say things like, always tried to make these derogatory comments that I looked lazy, I looked like I hadn't run, you know, and it was all this like, and I really feel like people have the biggest misconception about, especially women that have gained weight because they call them lazy and they call them like greedy, like they eat everything. And I'm saying the reason most of us lose weight is because we're too fucking busy to spend time on ourselves. You know, why does weight gain coincide with children? Why does weight gain coincide with overwhelm? Because you're not not thinking about yourself. You actually never sit down to eat a fucking meal. You know, that's why you've gained weight because you're eating shit on the go all the time. And also there's all this stuff happening in your life. Like let's not forget if you've had a child, there's hormonal factors and sleep deprivation. I mean, your body and your brain goes through the ringer. And then to use weight, like it's so malicious to use people's weight as the thing because, and I say to people, we should never be commenting. Like I would never, I never make comments about my pa- anyone, patient, friend's appearance to say, you're looking great, you look like you've lost weight because the the insinuation is this is good, it's rewarding, it's you're a bit thinner and you have no idea what people are going through. Is it a cancer diagnosis? Is it an eating disorder? Is it thorough toxicosis? It's just don't comment on weight. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Because the the people that I know that used to, I've pulled them up on it, but used to always comment on my weight. It was always in a nice way. Like, oh, you've lost weight. And I would be like, you know what? I get really paranoid about coming to see you because I know that you're going to be thinking about my weight. And if it's, if I haven't lost it at the time, then, you know, you might not say anything, but I know you're thinking about it. So can you just fucking stop? Like you're obsessed. It's weird. (laughs) Yeah. And call it out, I reckon. Yeah. I say to patients, particularly at this time of year when people are getting together and gathering, lots of patients who are living with body image issues or eating disorders feel very flared at this time because there's food, there's people, there's the comments. And I say to people, you can the boundary yeah you can actually say I'm not willing to have any comments or discussions about my weight or food or anything like that 100% especially with those uncles those fucking uncles that just love to talk about weight like and they're fat themselves fuck off (laughs) (laughs) I don't have those uncles in my life actually but do you know on this point raising kids you know just going one step further 
you know, we, and I don't know if we are the same age. I have no idea, but I'm 37. I'm older than you. You're more mature than me, but I'm 40. (laughs) I'm not more mature. I give that impression, (laughs) Carl. I've grown up in surrounded by diet culture. I remember picking up magazines as an adolescent and seeing this is how you can burn more fat, basically starve yourself and go for a run. I remember seeing that in like Dolly, your girlfriend back in the day. I remember seeing stuff on how to shred before your party. This kind of really problematic stuff around food and body image and weight. And so it's a really big thing as a parent to go, I'm going to acknowledge that. I'm going to acknowledge that I might have had a slightly problematic relationship with my own body and food, maybe in my 20s. I've had to reflect on that and go, oh, I reckon in med school, I did start really regulating what I ate and really tried to aspire towards a certain body image to feel successful. I've had to confront all of that and then go, I'm going to really change this for my kids. And it's an active process. Every thought, isn't it? Everything. Yeah. Yeah. And it is con because it's me going, I'm not going to label foods. I'm going to let them have access to everything and self-regulate when it comes to food, I should say. We have no scales in the home. It's all about, you know, I really love my body for being strong. It's not praising my daughter or son on you look so pretty today. It's not appearance-based. It's you're so clever, you're so kind, you're so creative, so that's not all about appearance. Like you said, that friend you see who comments on your weight, you don't want that to be the link. The problem is, though, that when they become teenagers, the outside world is so much stronger than us. And and you can say that all you want, but it's what the rest of the world says, and it's still the same. It is still the same as it was when we were young. The only thing that I've seen that I think is positive is role models like Billie Eilish who aren't yeah. particularly skinny. She's still, you know, not a big old girl, but she has a conviction about it. Do you know what I mean? Like anyone yeah. she loved would be cool. It's people like that that make you feel like, you know, because your kids can idolise them. But I just feel like at the end of the day, the boys still only want this really skinny people. And, you know, I see my daughter going through almost the same as what I went through. And, it, and I was so conscious raising her, you know, like my mum was really bad raising me. She was always like, you know, skinny is better and all that crap. Okay. I actively do the opposite. I praise my own body. I Yes. Do you know what I mean? I do all the- but the other thing is social media is a factor. Once kids have access to social media, which thankfully we're way too young for that, but, you know, the diet culture stuff on their con is heavy. I'm 37 and a doctor and I occasionally have to go, oh, prayer, don't buy into this. This is this is problematic. And I have to actually unpack and go, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. And that's hard for adolescents to do. You know, when you're scrolling and everyone has a certain body image and it's kind of, you know, there's thousands of likes underneath it, which is why there's a push. You know, lots of people, if you look at Butterfly Foundation and other places, are talking about more regulation on this stuff to protect young people. Yeah. There's one girl that I found on TikTok one day and she's so anorexic that she looks like she won't be alive for much longer. She's literally a skeleton. Her hips, you know, when you see the skeleton hips, that's what her hips look like. Yeah. It is terrible to watch, but I started digging deeper and people say that this is what gets her the views. There are websites that get together with all of her audience and talk about how they too. It's just really sadistic. And and when I saw that, I was like, oh, fuck, like this is, it's feeding it. All we can do is try and keep our kids offline for as long as we can. But, you know, like that, as I know, they fight you to the death to get it in and to, you know, find a way. 
to get into social media. They're obsessed, but it's terrifying. It really is. I don't, wouldn't wish like a shitty food relationship on anybody. And it is a very long journey to, you know, the person that you're talking about on social media, like that's so problematic and it glorifies that for that person, it's likely that this is a really complex and chronic terminal illness now. It does get to a point where it's terminal and you cannot turn it around. Well, yeah, because, well, for a range of reasons, but yes, because people might refuse treatment. Yes, if, if things are left too late, like medicine's amazing. You know, we can put an intravenous fluid through and we can deliver nutrition through various means. If things go too far, Con, like medicine can't fix everything. The body can go too far. Too much pressure on the organs. Yeah, and you've got to think about things like bone density and kidney function and the electrolytes. And I've got lots of patients who are, you know, having a journey with either body image issues or eating disorders and they're all, that. this is a huge spectrum of stuff. You can have loss of control with food. You can have really significant restrictions or compensation with exercise or, you know, fasting if you've eaten a particular particular food that you perceive as problematic, but it's a journey. Like these patients, I've known them for years and psychology and dietitian and me, we've got a team and, you know, you can be doing really well and then flare. It's a really complex journey. Yeah. It's terrible. It's just terrible, isn't it? It's like it's everything's been used against us as women, our bodies, our own health, you know, it's, yeah, it's Yes. Anyway, there's a lot of things that I think are unique to women. It's like, you know, and I say this often on Insta that we are led to believe that certain things are normal and we put up with stuff like period pain, like menorrhageal heavy bleeding, like premenstrual symptoms. We just are kind of taught to just put up with it. And often people are dismissed sadly by the healthcare profession. Like I've had patients say to me, or people say to me, I went in to see the GP about this and I was dismissed and told that's just normal, get on with it. You shop around, like there is such a huge spectrum of GPs, isn't there? Yes, yes. You've got to try, ask your friends. You've got to get the juju right. Yeah, that's so true. Juju. And I say to people, I might not be the right GP for you. I am quite intense. I like to, you know, really go hard on stuff. Let's manage this well. I try and meet my patients' agenda and meet in the middle sometimes or on different pages. It should be that you go into the room and you feel heard and seen and you leave that consulting room, I say to my patients, not being in the know, being empowered and not going, what the heck was she talking about? Mm. I don't understand what she meant when she said polycystic ovarian syndrome. I'm like, you should be leaving the room empowered. Yeah, and and there, there is often a certain level of lightness when you leave the GP because it's like you've unburdened yourself with all the things you've been worried about. Yes. <laughs> and, it, and it gives you like endorphins. It gives me dopamine. I often feel good after going to the doctor. Yes. And then like, that's well, a good relationship. Yeah. Then that's good. You said that your husband's a doctor too. Do you guys have your own clinic? No. So I don't have my own clinic. I go flit in and out as a contractor, which is what most GPs do. My husband is a pediatric and adult plastic and reconstructive surgeon. So he's a plastic surgeon, but he doesn't do cosmetic stuff. He does like recon and hands and other stuff. Is GP a specialisation? It is. So GP is the specialty. So we do three years of training. So you have to do all your junior doctor stuff, your internship, your residency, and then you can enter general practice. But it is a specialty all on its own. And some GPs will stay really broad. Like I've tried to stay broad. I love doing the pregnancy and the kids and the older people and rheumatological things and mental health. And some people go, I'd like to subspecialize and do additional training and stuff and go into a bit of a niche. But the reason I 
love general practice con is that like you are I'm there for everything for my patients like the good the bad the horrific the wonderful I'm that person in their life and I see you know patients who I've had you know they've had two kids I've had two kids we've lived that journey together I see their kids I see them I see their parents I'm privy to the most kind of the most deepest most private things in people's life like it's a privilege and an honor yeah yeah and you get to see you know, whereas every other specialty it's just for a small amount of time isn't it yeah and I get them for years and I get you know and I get to do it all I get to do the back pain and the joint pain and the mental health and the pregnancy and oh the miscarriage and you know the pregnancy again after that like it's just like I, I, my hairs are standing up because it is a proof like it makes me emotional that people actually let you into their life like that and trust you with their not just their health journey but their their emotional journey through life too the shit people tell their gp yeah totally well if you are getting a divorce you know and you can't yes. get out of bed they tell you to go to your gp if you want to quit smoking yeah. you think you're gonna kill yourself like everything it's just go to your gp first and they will tell you yeah don't and that yeah. will help you and so you yeah. be, and that's that is a privilege and so yeah to be that first point of call for everyone must be yes incredible is it stressful thinking yes yeah <laughs> It's so stressful. Like general practice. No, like, my husband, not going, did I say all the right things? <laughs> my husband says to me, he's like, mate, I don't know how you do your job because at least Willie knows what's coming through his consulting room door. Like he's got yeah. a niche, he's got a whereas we don't know. So it's it is stressful because it's also it's stressful because I know my patients. Like I've got patients at the moment we're waiting for results and I know these people. I've known them for years and I think I hope that breast ultrasound comes back normal. Of course. I hope I haven't missed anything when I said to that patient, I think their headache is a tension headache. And did, do you think, like, yes, it is. And there's uncertainty in general practice and you can't scan everybody because that's not good medicine. And so it is an art doing general practice well. Gosh, you know, like a good GP, as you said, they are life changing. And doing general practice well is, is it takes so much effort and to stay on top of stuff. Um, and to run on time and to, you know, make yeah. sure nothing slips through the cracks. It is a freaking art and it is beautiful and rewarding, but gosh, it's very stressful. And it's why there's so much burnout. Right. Is there? Yeah. Huge amounts in general practice. And that's to do with heaps of things like government and Medicare funding and how the system's built. But it's an exhausting job, particularly at the moment. There's a, there's a significant mental health crisis in this country. It's very taxing to get the help for your patients that they need. Put that with the rental crisis as well. And oh. people that are like so down and so like fucked having to live with each other because they can't move out. And it's just like, I don't know what's going to happen in five years, what they've zoomed out, you know, like what the world's going to look like after this. But it's, you must be getting yeah. the getting the people are stressed like I'm seeing that people are worried about the world they're financially stressed as you said there's the rental crisis there's cost of living people are worried I've got people in their like 20s early 30s saying to me Priya I think I wanted to have children but I'm going to park that because we can't afford it I'm too worried about the climate there's a lot of worry and I get to see that in the consulting room it's it's, it's a huge insight into what people are living at what point would you say to someone you need to take antidepressants well, there's so much more I do before that. Yes, there's medication options, but like if someone's coming to me seriously, uncontrolled stress or worried, you know, I'm going to take a full history. I'm going to check that there's nothing else going on like generalised anxiety disorder or depression. Is there something else here? Often, Con, I will start with, 
okay, we need to prescribe some lifestyle interventions here to get the brain and the worry and the stress a bit down. So I'm prescribing caffeine reduction, physical activity, bit of mindfulness or meditation, you know, come back and see me in two weeks, let's see how you're going kind of stuff. But for some people who are, you know, now there's possibly an anxiety or a mood disorder based on these stressors, be it climate, financial, whatever it is, that's a different entity. And so then I'm doing the lifestyle stuff. Do we need a psychologist to help you with strategies, for instance, con to deal with the climate worry? How can we address those thoughts and stop catastrophizing? How can we get you focused on the present and not thinking here about the climate constantly? Mm -hmm. Psychology, very effective. And the right psychologist, again, talking about juju before with your GP. And then for some people, yes, there's medication. But I have to say, I see a lot of mental health stuff and I don't prescribe medication as often as some might think. And I know many people have had different experiences. I went to the GP and they tried to give me a script and da, da, da. As a GP, I certainly go, let's try this stuff. And we know the evidence for medication is really more for moderate to severe depression and, and anxiety as well. And psychology and lifestyle interventions tend to be more effective than medication when you're on the mild end of the spectrum. So not everyone needs it. Yeah, 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 of course. But if you need it, holy mama, it shouldn't be stigmatised. Yeah, yeah. Because you've had two children, a girl and a boy. Being a doctor and a GP, I know that you've obviously had to study for so long to do that and you would have had to not have known everything before you went through it. But was there anything different about having a baby to what you expected it was going to be having seen so many women go through that? So I actually talk about this in my book, Eat, Sleep, Play, Love which is I've written a book as the all the medical tidbits for the first two years of parents' life, right? right. And it's all the medical tidbits. It's the evidence, the pros and the cons. I talk about there's actually no bloody right way to do it all. Here's the evidence, the pros and the cons. Make a choice. You choose. There's no right way. And I talk about sleep and feeding and all the rest of it with expert voices. But in the book, I do talk about that some things were a shell shock, 100%. Even though, Con, I had seen women for six-week checks with their baby, helped with breastfeeding, done all this stuff, actually living it totally different. I talk in the book about the fact that I actually had this epiphany one day where I was breastfeeding my child and I was so exhausted, my daughter, and I had struggled with breastfeeding with her. And I went, oh my goodness, this is what my patients have been living. I hadn't gotten it, Con. I had not gotten it. The bone tired fatigue, the feeling of failure as a parent because I couldn't breastfeed well, despite, you know, I'm so used to working hard for stuff. And being able to get it and, and achieving it. Yeah, because you just work And I get the certificate or I get the medal, I get the kudos, and this was not like that. And it was at eight months, and I mentioned this in, in the book, but my mum said to me, darling, there's no medal here. The penny dropped over several months where I went, oh, my God, I know what mum's saying. This is just me and how I do it is okay, but I'm okay at this. And I was terrible at breastfeeding my daughter. She, we just did not nail it. Wow. And you did it for eight months and still didn't nail it. The whole time was tumultuous, Con. And I threw kitchen sinks and <laughs> lactation consultants and, you know, why am I not nailing this? And I remember one day Will walking into the room and being like, babe, you could drop the baby. I had her in the football hold like this and I was rocking in a dark room. The football room. hold is terrible. Isn't it terrible? I had buttons and they wanted me to do the football hold. And I was like, unless someone's going to put them on me every time. I it's hard. Yeah. But I was standing in a dark room rocking and Will was like, babe, you're either going to drop the baby, you're going to do your butt, babe, you are nailing this. Like he was like, please, please, please. And I hadn't appreciated, Con, that pressure we put on ourselves, the stigma of how you feed your child, the sleep deprivation, the bone tired fatigue. I didn't know till I lived it. I was shocked. 
That's validating. <laughs> yes, of course. Validating to know, isn't it? Because it's like, well, if you couldn't do it. Because I was just thinking, how the freaking hell do you have a career in the media, be a GP and be a freaking mother? Does your mum help you a lot? No, I'm probably quite efficient with my time. Willie and I, like, you should see my diary. Like, it's chaotic, but it's colour-coded and wow. we are highly organised. We always like this? Always. Right. Did you grow up in Melbourne? No, in Adelaide. Right. I love the way you're like, oh, she's a bit creepy. You're looking <laughs> at me like. <laughs> I am really. Have you had your autism diagnosed yet? <laughs> <laughs> My ADHD. Well, I am really organised. I think I'm efficient. I'm organised. Will always says to me, he goes, you can do in two hours what I can do in, you know, in five, like you're just efficient. I can cut through the crap. And I just plan my time really effectively, I think. But yeah, my mum, we've got a nanny one day a week. Willie steps in. He's kind of a really hands-on, you know, he steps back so I can step up. We we kind of juggle a bit. He'd be doing hours too as a surgeon. Yes. Yeah. Is he one of those like amazing husbands though that does the 50% of the child rearing on the weekends? Even during the week. So Willie is, and we talk about the mental load very openly. I'm like, I do wear the mental load, the invisible load, the stuff you can't see. I need you to step up. I need to not write a list. You need to just step in here. And so we over years, Con, have gotten to the point where we know our roles and he, there are just things I don't do because Willie does them. And Willie and I luckily are on the same page with the big stuff on parenting, you know, like raising anti-racist kids, kids who are very, you know, anti-misogyny, gender equality, human rights. We're very both passionate about that. And so I reckon being on the same page for the big stuff and being really good mates. Yep. He was my best mate in med school. That's how we got together. In med school. Yeah, we got drunk one night at a pub and had a pash and then two (laughs) kids later. like, So he's my best, you know, we are on the same page for the big stuff. He has got my back. I know that. He will always put me number one in the kids and that counts for a shitload. Doesn't it? And it's someone that believes in the same things that you believe in because otherwise there will be some real tension and resentment. Correct. Yeah. Especially with the complexities of life and we've both got full plates and demanding careers and there's stressors of that. But, you know, people go to us, gosh, you guys working into 4.30 in the morning and unless Will's on call and there's a total disaster, no, we're in bed at 9.30, Like we have a shower and a chat together most nights. That's where we unpack and debrief and talk about the kids and the day and what he's stressed about at work and what I'm stressed about and... Like we talk a lot. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah. That's so great. Now, how lovely. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, I'm sure we'll be back again, if you will, when different things come up. Absolutely. I would love this. I've loved chatting. Listen to you talk. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I'll tell Will that. I'll tell Will that someone loves loves my incessant chatter. (laughs) I do. I want to meet Will now. I'm all intrigued. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much. You're absolutely Thank you, Con. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of To Be Frank. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, be sure to click follow. And leaving a review helps others find the podcast. Join us next time as we explore more interesting topics and people from all over the world. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.